0: The title of the message this morning is Lessons from the Graveyard, Part 2. Lessons from the Graveyard, Part 2. Let me uh, have you stand this morning, and we'll read the first 14 verses of our text for last week, just to give us a, a running start here, and then we'll pick up beginning in verse 14. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13 and these are the words that he pins. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he had broken the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out in a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are Many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter into them. So he, Jesus, gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, which I would certainly encourage you to do, I think you'll hear better. There's, there's something that happens when the tip of a pen touches paper. You'll retain what you hear better. You'll learn better. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, you'll want to look at your outline. I've given you point number one, which is what we covered last week. And what I said last week is that we were looking at the text or we were breaking the text up into its movements. Or into its scenes. And the first scene that we looked at last week was the destructive power of Satan. We, we see this man. Remember, Jesus has, has gotten in a boat. He had been teaching along the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, just probably south of Capernaum there. And Jesus and his disciples had gotten in a boat. They had crossed over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They are now in Gentile area. And as soon as Jesus and his disciples make landfall, as soon as they put feet on soil, they are confronted with the most interesting individual. This man here, of course, we mentioned there are probably two men. Mark Mark focuses on the most prominent of the two figures, thus writes about one of them, two men who are possessed with a demon. And we see here, I mean, these, these fellas have unimaginable strength. They're living in the place of the dead, they're, they're, they're walking aimlessly through the tombs, through the catacombs, night and day, almost without ceasing, they're shrieking out. Remember I said last week, the, the original language there has the idea of, of unintelligible cries. Can not understand what they're saying? They're just shrieking out, shrilling out, crying out, screaming out, day and night, cutting themselves with stones, presumably to try to take their own life here. I mean, these men are a hot mess of lacerations, uh, they are a hot mess of scabs, they, they are living in delirium. I mentioned last week, and I'll say again, that what we have here is a picture, albeit pales in comparison to the real place, but what we have here is a picture of hell. We have a very real picture of hell here, but we have a very real Savior that steps foot on the scene and calms the madness that is raging in these men. If you can remember back to our study just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus, uh, with the sheer power and authority in his voice, still a raging, violent sea. And what we'll see here in our text this morning, and as we progress on, is that we will see Jesus calm an equally violent, raging storm In the soul of a man. The first point there last week, or the first scene in our text, was the destructive power of Satan. Write this down if you're taking notes. Point number two, and this is where we'll pick back up this morning, is the redeeming power of the Savior. The redeeming power of the Savior. Jesus has now stepped on the scene, and Jesus is interacting with this demon possessed man. And where we'll pick up this morning is here in verse. Uh, Thirteen, the the demons in this man. We presume they are many, for they give the name legion. For we are many, presumably many tormenting this man. These men ask Jesus if he will send them into the nearby grazing pigs. And that's exactly what Jesus allows. Jesus permits that right here in our text. Look at verse 13. Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, the numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now, let me start right there and ask you a question. Why? Why would Jesus allow the demons to inhabit pigs just to have these pigs go running and careen off the face of a cliff? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do that? Jesus could have just re- re- resigned these, diamonds or these demons to the pit instantaneously. He could have destroyed them on the spot for that matter. With one single word, he could have brought them to naught. But Jesus permits them. He allows them to go into the pigs. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation, and demons, as powerful as they might be, are not uncreated beings. So why, when they request, does Jesus permit their request and allow them to go into the pigs? I think Jesus did it. I think Jesus allowed the demons to inhabit the pigs and run off the cliff because it provided undeniable proof to all the onlookers of the miracle of deliverance that had just taken place. Remember I said last week, this is very similar here to, uh, to the instance back in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus deals with the, the paralytic, the paralyzed man. Jesus says to all those onlookers, which is easier? Is it easier to, to uh, tell this man his sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to tell him to take his mat and to get up and walk? Which is it? Well, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no one can validate that. No one can prove that. No one can verify that. But if Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, get up and walk, take your mat and walk, then everyone sitting in the company knows exactly what has happened, knows that Jesus possesses the power that he says he has. And I think the exact same thing is taking place here in our text. I think the destruction of the pigs gives assurance that the demons or the unclean spirits have actually gone. They've actually departed. They've actually left. And I said last week, and I'll say it again, this serves as a living sermon here. It serves as a living sermon that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. You know, it's interesting that some have charged Jesus with wastefulness, Jesus just wasted these 2,000 pigs. Why did he do that? He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have done a number of other things. And so Jesus is wasteful here. But we must remember that Jesus is free to do whatever he wills with all of his creation. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He cannot lie, die, or deny himself. Outside of that, he can do whatever he pleases. He is the one who possesses all sovereign authority. All sovereign prerogative is his. No one tells him what to do or what he cannot do. No one stays his hand. He is the sovereign authority of the universe. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian in the late 1800s, Said this, he said, There is not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, This is mine, I own it. Remember that, friends. There is not a single square inch under the whole created realm with which the Lord Jesus Christ does not have supreme sovereign ownership. Jesus destroying the pigs wasn't a lack of compassion on the pigs, nor was it a lack of care or concern for their owners. Jesus was willing to sacrifice 2,000 pigs, as valuable as they were, to rescue the demon-possessed man. Jesus is willing to go after the one. He's willing to go after the two, and he'll sacrifice that which is lesser for the greater. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. Now, what did the herdsman do? Look at verse 14. Mark writes, The herdsmen fled, and they told it in all the city and in all the country, and and all the people came out to see what it was that had happened. What did the herdsmen do? Well, they ran right back to their town. They ran right back to the city, and they spread the news far and wide. And what was the result? Look at your Bible there. People who were aware of the demon-possessed man assembled to see what had happened. Look at verse 15. And they, that is those from the city and from the country, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man who had, who had the legion. And look at how they see him. They see him sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And how do they respond? With fear. Mark tells us that they were afraid. I think it's safe to say that this demon-possessed man, these demon-possessed men here were probably well-known in the city. These men were probably the talk of the town now. I mean, you can imagine, if you are the man who runs around naked like a fierce beast, unable to be tamed, you cut yourself and you cry out in the night with unintelligible noises, people are going to know who you are. You'll make a name for yourself. What did these towns people see when they arrived on the scene? Well, they witnessed the fruit of the redemptive touch of Jesus Christ. They saw, they bore witness with their own eyes to the redemptive touch of Jesus Christ. They saw that Jesus did what no one else could do. No one else could bind these men. No one else could shackle them. No one else could tame them. But when when these people get on the scene, they see that Jesus did what no one else was previously able to do. Jesus had rescued this man from the ravages of hell. The very fact that this man was sitting clothed and in his right mind when the people of the city and the county came or country came to see what had happened, it's a picture of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let your mind catalog back there for just a second. You need to have that memorized. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Jesus changed the man. He's sitting down. Jesus clothed the man, both physically and spiritually. And then Jesus calmed the man. He's in his right mind. Jesus changed him. He clothed him, and he calmed him. This is also a picture of discipleship here in our text. A restored man sitting at the feet of Jesus. Is that a good picture of you, by the way? Are you a restored man or a restored woman, now sitting at the feet of Jesus, your master, letting him be your discipler, letting him teach you as you walk with him day in and day out? Jesus calms both the outer storm of the sea and the inner storm of this demonized man. What Jesus does here, the the overarching picture is Jesus Brings systematic calm to chaos. Jesus calms our madness. What is the response of those who had come to see? Again, the text says they were afraid. This sounds strangely familiar, does it not? This was the exact same response of the disciples in the boat as it's being tossed by the wind and the waves. All those who come now to look on, all those who come now to see were afraid. Just like the disciples who were fearful of the storm. Look at what they asked Jesus for in their fear. Look at verse 17. Mark writes, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now, let's press pause right there. Why in the world Why in the world would would onlookers who came and saw that Jesus did what no one else was previously able to do, ask Jesus, request rather sternly, that Jesus depart from them, that Jesus leave them alone, that Jesus go away? Why is it if Jesus had just radically delivered this man who had been previously inundated devastated by demons, it would reason to think that all who came would want him to stay. Jesus, stick around. Jesus, keep doing what you're doing. But that obviously wasn't their desire. A matter of fact, the tense of the verb translated depart there in your Bible suggests that they wanted Jesus to leave and to leave without delay. Move on, Jesus. Get on out of here. You're not welcome here. You're not wanted here. Move on out. Do it without delay. Such is the sad reality, I think, uh, of our culture. We just want to get Jesus out of everything. And then we wonder why, why everything is in, a, is in a state of chaos. Let's look at the third scene here. We've looked at the destructive power of Satan. We've looked at the redeeming power of the Savior. Uh, Let's bring last week's text to a close here uh, as as we uh, let our eyes and our minds focus on the gospel witness of the sent man. The gospel witness of the sent man. This is uh, verses 18 through 20. This uh, will button up our text for last week. What about this man whom Jesus had just delivered from the grip of Satan? He'd been changed. And he, unlike the townspeople, he, unlike the people of the country, did not want to separate from the presence of Jesus. Not only did he beg Jesus not to leave, but he wanted to go with him. Jesus, allow me to follow you. Look at the concluding three verses, beginning in verse 18. Mark writes, as he, that's the once demonized man, who had been calmed, tamed, clothed, sitting in his right mind, Mark writes, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, called out to him, cried out to him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to all your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You see, While all the crowds could not wait to get Jesus on his way, we see a much different response from the man whom Jesus had just delivered. Far from wanting Jesus to go, he wanted Jesus to stay, but Jesus, if you must go, can I go with you? Permit me to be with you, to follow you, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't grant this request. It's interesting to note as we, and I know you'll have to think back to last week as well, but but as we've worked our way through this particular text. There are three requests in this text. The first request is in verse 12 there. Look at your Bible. The demons request that Jesus send them into the pigs. Jesus granted that request. The second request comes in verse 17. The citizens of the area requested that Jesus leave, be on his way, go, be gone. Jesus granted that request as well. But lastly, when the man whom had been delivered from the demon, from the unclean spirit, requests to follow Jesus, Jesus refuses this request. Why is that? Why does Jesus refuse this request? Of the three requests made in the text, you would think that he would have refused the first two. But Jesus permits the first two and denies the third. Why is that? Well, in denying the man's request, Jesus provided this man with a much greater privilege. Jesus provides this man with a much more wonderful opportunity. Look at verse 19. Jesus told the man, go home to your friends and tell it to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy, how he's had mercy on you. Interesting to note, Jesus has previously instructed some individuals to be silent. As Jesus has performed a particular miracle, as he has worked a particular miracle, he has charged those present or the one involved not to go tell anybody. But here in our text, Jesus denies the request of this man to follow him, gives him a greater opportunity to go home and to tell all of his friends and family how much Jesus has done for him, but Jesus does not instruct this man to be silent. What an opportunity. What an opportunity and a responsibility. Jesus delivered this man, lit his heart on fire, gave him a mission as a Caruso, literally a preacher here in our text, a proclaimer or a herald. Go and proclaim, Jesus says, go and tell it on the mountain how I have had mercy on you. I mean, this man here is a living, walking, talking, vivid, undeniable demonstration of what Jesus Christ can do in the heart of a man or a woman. And when Jesus gets a hold of the heart of a man or a woman like this and lights it on fire, that individual should not be able to help but to go proclaim what he has seen and heard. Let me pause right there, friends, and ask how are we doing individually and how are we doing as a congregation at fulfilling that very mission? Jesus looked at his disciples just before he rose into heaven and he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and surely I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Brothers and sisters, I know you know it, but it it bears repeating that that was not a suggestion. It was a command. It's stated as an imperative. It's a go do this Furthermore, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey me. All of our ministries are going to look different. We said that before. All of our ministries are going to look uniquely different. But we all need to have a ministry. A Christian without a ministry does not work. It's not an option. We all have a sphere of influence. We all have somebody, someone, or someone's That we can go and tell all that the Lord has done for us, how he's been merciful to us. How are we doing there? I mean, friends, look at these flags that hang back here. I I, I get a, a vision of them every Sunday as I preach. God is a God of the nations. That's why we talk about the nations here at the chapel. We want to make disciples And we want to do so right where we are in our neighborhoods. We want to do so abroad in the nations. And we want to make sure that we're passing the baton to the next generation. God may be calling you to the nations, but I can guarantee you that God's calling you to your neighbor. I can guarantee you that. And he's calling me to the same. My point isn't to guilt trip you here. My my, my point is to love trip you. To, to the degree that our hearts have been lit on fire with the love of Christ, the redeeming love of Christ, we will be like, like John there in Acts before the Jewish Sanhedrin. We cannot help but speaking about that which we've seen and heard. What this man once was, he was no longer. He is no longer. And that's the transformative power of Christ in the life of every believer. If you've been recreated, then you have a story to tell, and you need to be proclaiming that. You need to be proclaiming that. Friends, we are the man of the tombs. I don't know if you catch that as we study through this text here, but we are the man of the tombs. Every single one of us, born under the curse of sin and madness, each one of us needing to have our out-of-control hearts changed and clothed and calmed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Some of us here this morning have been saved from the same wretched tombs that this man once inhabited, and some of us still remain. You're here this morning, and you, like the man in our text, have been redeemed by the glorious, gracious power of Christ, then you have a story to tell. You have something to proclaim to others. You, you may not have a PhD or a THM or a D-min in systematic theology, and you don't need it. But can you at least, like the once blind man, say, I once was blind, but now I see, and he did it. He did it. Can you testify to the work of God's grace in your heart and in your life? If you found peace with God through Christ, then we ought to be proclaiming peace with God through Christ to a lost and dying world. I want to encourage you to be like the psalmist. Write this verse down in the, in the margin there if you're taking notes. Psalm sixty six sixteen. 16. Psalm sixty six sixteen. 16. And I want to encourage you to be like this. The psalmist said this. He said, come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. Be like that. Let's be like that. But here this morning and you've never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, friend, I can assure you that Jesus can forgive your load of sin and bring peace to your weary soul just as sure as he calmed the madness in this man. You can bank on it. You can't carry it yourself. You can't pay for it yourself. But Jesus can. He'll carry. He'll pay for your awful load. Come to him. Bring your weight and mess of sin to him. He's calling all sinners. Come home. Now, as one crowd here in our text is begging Jesus to go, as one crowd here in our text is relieved to see Jesus depart, there is another crowd who is eager to welcome him as he and his disciples get back in their boat and they return to the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably again around the Capernaum area. That was Jesus' home base Uh, for a lot of his ministry as he crisscrossed through Galilee. A lot of Jesus' ministry took place there in Capernaum up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee there. And there's another crowd there as Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat and they cross over the sea again that are eager for him, that are waiting for him, that are expecting him. Let's turn our attention there this morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the next scene in our text here. Jesus and the sorrowful father. Jesus and the sorrowful Father. Look at your Bible there, specifically at verses 21 through 24. Mark writes this. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Here's another crowd. We've mentioned many times as we've studied Mark's gospel here that crowds are not seen by Jesus as a sign of ministry success. As a matter of fact, the crowds oftentimes get in Jesus' way as he is preaching the gospel. Here we see another crowd, and we'll see them many more times before we bring our study to a close at the end of Mark. Jesus and his disciples are greeted here beside the sea, and among that crowd were two individuals, we read about one here already, that were especially eager, especially excited to see Jesus. Verses 21 through 43 tell us the story of two individuals who, from a human perspective, which we need to not live by human perspective, by the way, we're oftentimes tempted to do that, but from a human perspective, these two individuals that are eager to meet Jesus seem to have a hopeless circumstance in front of them, seem to be helpless and in despair. The first is Jairus, who was a ruler in the synagogue. He had a 12-year-old daughter who was near death, and the second, who we'll pick up on here in just a moment, was an anonymous woman who was suffering from an incurable disease. Of all the crowd... These two individuals, Jairus and an anonymous woman, are eager and excited to see Jesus. Now, let's talk about Jairus here for just a minute. He appears first in the text. Who is he? Who is Jairus? In verse 22, Mark tells us that Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. Jairus was his name, and seeing Jesus, Jairus responded by falling at his feet. Jairus' position, or his job, His occupation was that he was an officer or a supervisor, a leader in the synagogue. Though he he himself was a lay leader, he wasn't a rabbi, he wasn't a teacher, he was responsible for overseeing everything that took place in the public worship services that were conducted in the synagogue. This is a massive responsibility here. He wasn't a rabbi himself, he wasn't a teacher himself, but he was responsible for all that took place in the public worship in the synagogue. Rulers of the synagogue were typically highly respected in the community. Uh, They they would have maintained the scrolls there in the synagogue. Uh, They would have designated scripture readers, prayers, and preachers in the synagogue. In short, uh, Jairus oversaw everything pertaining to the synagogue's facility, its security, and its services, a massive responsibility there. It's interesting also to note that Jairus, the name there, means God will enlighten Or God will illuminate, and we will see that come to reality as we progress through our text this morning. God will enlighten Jairus. God will illuminate Jairus' heart and mind. We'll see that name become a reality in our text this morning. Now, if you can remember back to Mark chapter 3, maybe you're not far there uh, in your Bible, could potentially be on the same page there on your left, but if you can remember back to Mark chapter 3, Jesus had gotten in trouble because he had healed a man in the synagogue on the sabbath. And Jesus raised the eyebrows, he furled the eyebrows of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, As a matter of fact they were conspiring against him if you could remember to take him out. They were beginning to plot his death all the way back in Mark chapter 3. I mean Jesus was quickly becoming an enemy of the state. And so for that reason, he, Jesus withdrew from the synagogue and he began teaching outside the city along the sea, which is everything that we've seen take place between Mark 3 and where we are here in Mark chapter 5. I mean, Jesus is ministering not in the official place anymore, not in the synagogue anymore, but he's ministering out in the open air along the sea. He's with the masses, he's with the crowds now. Mark doesn't tell us if Jarius held a similar disposition toward Jesus that the Pharisees had. Of course, we know the Pharisees were beginning, if they did not already, to hate Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us what Jairus' disposition was toward Jesus, but because of the nature of his job and his association with the religious leaders who certainly opposed Jesus, Jarius's coming to Jesus would have certainly been very difficult. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. If you work for, work with the religious leaders of the day who despise Jesus, your coming out to meet him in public raises a lot of suspicion about you. The public image isn't the number one concern for Jairus at this moment. At this point, Jairus' posture and speech aren't that of an official, but that of a desperate, pleading father. You see, Jarius' daughter is critically ill. We don't know exactly what has taken place here, but we know she's critically ill. And in his desperation, Jarius sees no other alternative than to bring his otherwise hopeless need to Jesus. Jesus, if anyone can help, you've got to help. Look at verse 23. Mark tells us that Jairus implored him earnestly saying or begged him earnestly saying, my little daughter, the daughter that I love is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. A critical condition here. J- Jairus tells us the language that he uses here in the Greek, he uses a colloquialism, meaning that my daughter is at death's door, or she's fading quickly. She's fading fast. There was a gut-wrenching urgency in Jarius' request. It's presumable that Jarius had seen Jesus healing before. We don't know that Jarius saw Jesus heal the man in the synagogue on the Sabbath back in Mark chapter 3, but he certainly would have known about it. As the overseer or the leader or the ruler of the synagogue, he certainly would have known about it. He would have known that Jesus had the power if he hadn't seen it with his own eyes over physical infirmities. And so what does he do? He comes here and he entreats Jesus to follow him home and to lay his hands on his dying daughter that she might be made well. I mean, Jarius is like so many of us in our coming to Christ. It, it wasn't for his love for Christ that Jarius came. It was his need. It wasn't because he had some overwhelming love for Christ. Because in his heart, the affections welled up for Jesus. No, he came because of his need. It was his desperation and a glimmer of hope that drew Jairus to Jesus. He saw Jesus as being his only hope, his only chance, the last-ditch effort. It's oftentimes been said that despair is commonly a prelude to grace. In other words, we say it this way. People oftentimes look to Christ when they've hit what? The bottom. When they've hit rock bottom. That's what we mean there. Uh, when, when we say that, that uh, despair is commonly a prelude to grace. Though Jairus' reaching out to Jesus as primarily a result of his present circumstances, he is exhibiting the bud of faith. And Jesus is going to nurture that bud into bloom. Jesus is going to take that small bud of faith. Even though it wasn't, it wasn't because of a love for Christ that brought him. It was his need. But Jesus is going to take that small bud of trust in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. And he's going to nurture it into bloom before the story's over. Now... Despite the clamoring crowd, Jesus shows himself to be interruptible. I love this, by the way. I mean, here, just put yourself in the scene if you, can, if you can do it for a second here. I mean, a massive throng of people all clamoring. The voices are high. There's pushing, there's shoving, there's jockeying for position. Jairus is the one that makes his way to Jesus. He throws himself down, begging, imploring Jesus to come with him. And Jesus stops in that moment and shows himself to be interruptible to the rest of the crowd, and focus his attention on Jairus. Jesus sees the need and enters into the desperation of this distraught father whose hope is hanging by a thread and agrees to follow him home. I love that. Such is the nature of our Savior. Tender, compassionate, caring, interested in. Mark says, and he, Jesus, went with him. And the great crowd followed him and thronged about him, literally pressed in on him. Remember, Jesus thought that he was uh, in danger of physically being crushed at one point, so Jesus got in a boat. Well, the same thing happens everywhere Jesus goes. The crowd throngs him, presses in, threatens to crush him. I mean, Jairus, as any parent would, I'm sure, is thinking, if not saying, Jesus, we, we got to go. Let's go. Let's let's get a move on here. But it's interesting to note that there's an interruption. Jairus interrupts Jesus in the crowd. But as Jesus agrees to go with Jairus to his home, we see here in the text another interruption. Because a woman with a long-standing disease, also comes to Jesus. There are two people in our text that have a need, that are desperate and have no hope and see Jesus as their only means of saving. And as Jesus and Jairus are heading back home, the, the crowd in tow here, this woman shows up and presents her need to Jesus. Again, I think you can, you can put yourself in this position here. Probably many of you as parents have had a child growing up who was injured in some way. I can remember uh, when when Caden was young, waiting to get the call. I knew I was going to get it at some point uh, in my life, waiting to get the call at the office from Jody that said, get in the car, we're on the way to urgent care, or get in the car, we're on the way to the hospital. Uh, I I waited for that call, and it came uh, one day. Caden decided that he was going to join the circus and jumped off of a stool in the kitchen, and that bought us some stitches uh, and some glue on his face. And obviously, he's fine now, but put yourself in in the position as a parent. If you've had a child who's been injured, and you put that child in the vehicle, and you're zooming down the road toward the hospital, and all of a sudden, all the lights are what? Red. All of a sudden, it seems like traffic is moving at a standstill. And so we're like, come on, come on, light, come on. I mean, we're, we're, we're. Looking for where the, the double line turns to a single so we can pass cars and get there as quickly as possible. And I, I think that's probably exactly what was going on in Jairus' heart and mind as Jesus agreed to go home with him. And now Jesus is stopped again by someone else with a pressing need. Jairus is probably thinking to himself, Jesus, we don't have time for this. We, we got to get home. I already told you she was critically ill, fading fast, going down, sinking down at death's door. We got to go. What does Jesus do? He stops the caravan again. Write this down if you're taking notes. This next scene here, we see Jesus and the suffering woman. Jesus and a sorrowful father first. And now enters into the scene here, Jesus and a suffering woman. Jesus and a suffering woman. Look at verses 25 through 34. Let me just read the text for you here. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Interestingly enough, Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, and she had suffered much under many physicians, and she had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather she grew worse. And she heard the reports, just as Jairus had, about Jesus, and she had come up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, then I'll be made well. And immediately, remember early on in our study, we said that Mark is the gospel of immediacy, Here's the word here again. Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately, there it is again, turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, almost kind of poking at him here, Jesus, do you see the crowds pressing in around you? And you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Similar response as Jarius there, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, who is this woman? We know who Jarius is. He's a ruler in the synagogue. Who is this woman? Well, she's a no-name. She's an obscure, no-name woman. We have no idea who she is or well, where she came from. Jarius was a prominent, well-known figure. This woman is anonymous. We don't know her name, we don't know where she lived, but she, like Jerry, has had a desperate need and from a human perspective, she feels hopeless. Have you ever been there, friends? Have you ever been in that place where from a human perspective, you feel hopeless? Whatever the circumstances, whatever the situation may be, you, you can't see the end of it. You don't know how it's going to work out. Fear is typically the result. When we begin to look inward, instead of looking outward and upward, fear is the result. For 12 years, this woman had suffered from an incurable hemorrhage that was slowly destroying her. I mean, can you imagine the discouragement day after day after day after day? This woman had tried every conceivable remedy under the sun to no avail. Still ill. Mark tells us that she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but instead grew worse. I mean, I want you to notice here. She suffered physically. I mean, this constant loss of blood would have left her weak and anemic. There was no transfusion uh, procedure available. I mean, she would have just suffered in this position day after day after day. She would have struggled with chronic fatigue, pale skin, shortness of breath. The simple everyday requirements of life would have left her completely wiped out, exhausted, Matter of fact, in verse 29, let your eye kind of move forward there in the text. In verse 29, the word translated disease is the word mastix. It's used elsewhere, uh, it's translated elsewhere as scourge or whip or beat. In other words, day after day, this woman was beaten down by her illness. She struggled physically. She struggled medically as well. I mean, I grew up with a mom. Maybe some, of you, and I love her to pieces. But I grew up with a mom. Maybe some of you are like this: who every time I had an itch or a hurt or a complaint of any way, she walked over to the shelf and she got the medical manual uh, out. It was like six inches thick, and she pulled it out and she started asking me diagnostic questions: "Does it hurt here? Does it hurt there? Can you cough? Can you raise your hand? Can you touch your toes?" And it's like I grew up, thought I was dying. Love her to pieces, but I, I, was, I can't tell you how many things I've been diagnosed with growing up. For all the medical treatments that we're blessed with today, that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Most of the medical treatment in Jesus' day uh, revolved around weird potions and superstitions and fright therapy. We just try to scare the illness out of somebody. Suffice it to say, this woman had been put through the ringer medically to no avail. She suffered financially as well. Mark tells us that she'd spent all she had. I mean, remedy after remedy, failure after failure. I wonder how many times she thought that the next promising cure would be the one only to be left empty-handed and empty-hearted again at the end. At the end of the day, she was penniless, destitute, and without hope. And then she struggled socially and religiously. I mean, this woman, according to the law, was unclean. Here she is hemorrhaging. She would have been unclean That means she couldn't have had any physical contact with another human being lest they too become unclean. Anyone that knew her would have avoided her like the plague. And for this reason, it's even presumable that she traveled from afar to get to Jesus because anyone in the crowd that knew who she was would have pointed her out very quickly. It's presumable that she came in, that she traveled to see Jesus She just wanted to put herself in close proximity to him. She probably wasn't married because she would have defiled her husband if she was. She couldn't worship at the temple because she was unclean. I mean, this woman literally lived life on the fringes of society as an outcast. And Jesus meets her in her need. Look at what she's thinking here in verses 27 through 29. She thinks, if I can just touch his garment. Uh, Pious Jews in Jesus' day wore an outer garment with four tassels, one on each corner. And it was, uh, it was the superstition of the day that, that if, a, if, a, if a person could, could touch uh, a, a, a god or a powerful person, then, then whatever power that person had could potentially be transferred or whatever blessing there could be transferred to the individual who had need. And so she would probably bought into this superstition. Of course, she tried everything else in the book as well. And so thinking, this may be my only last-ditch effort, I will sneak into the crowd here. I want to be anonymous. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to create commotion. I want to slip in, and I want to touch and run. You've heard dine and dash? This was touch and dash. It's exactly what's taking place here. She doesn't want to be known. She doesn't want to cause commotion. She wants to just touch the hem of his garment, potentially to be healed, and then to leave. Look how Jesus responds to the woman. Look at verses 30. And the following there, Jesus perceiving in himself, right after she touched him, the power had gone out from him. Immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Again, his disciples kind of poke at him here and say, Jesus, why are you asking who touched you? You're in a massive crowd of people here. But Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told the whole truth. She spilled her guts here. And look how Jesus responds. He says, daughter, at love that language. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I mean, she came in a a selfish disposition here. She came with superstitious faith, but Jesus drew her in. Jesus did not uh, charge her with wrongdoing. Jesus did not harp at her. Jesus did not discourage her. He received her. Even though her faith was woefully incomplete, though it was superstitious, inadequate, uh, not right, Jesus still received her she wanted to be anonymous jesus did not want her to be anonymous jesus singles her out here why because jesus isn't just looking for a something jesus is looking for a someone what she wanted was something what jesus wanted was a relationship with someone jesus wanted a personal encounter a personal encounter This woman represents humanity, she represents all of us, we're all ill, we've all spent all of our resources uh, trying remedies and things which do not work, and Jesus Christ comes to us from the cross saying, it is finished. It is finished, I'm all you need, I'm the sufficient one. We need to touch him by faith, and don't fear that he won't respond. Friends, if you're here this morning, and you've never... Reached out to Christ, so to speak, in faith or trusted in him by faith. Don't fear that he won't respond. Don't fear that you're too ignorant. Don't fear that you're too dirty. Fear one thing. Fear that you will let him pass without reaching out to him. Jesus heals this woman. He heals her. And he saves her. Let's conclude our study here this morning. Look at... Number five there on your outline, Jesus and the sleeping child. Jesus and the sleeping child. We're going to be quick here. I'm just going to summarize the text for you uh, instead of reading the text here. I mean, Jairus finally gets home. Word has come to him that your daughter's already died. And any, any ember, any, any little spark of hope or faith that Jairus had in the beginning is probably waning, uh, to say the least. This is the devastating news in verse 35. Your daughter is dead. Some come from his house saying, your daughter is dead. Why why trouble the teacher any further? It's interesting. Jesus gives clear instruction here to Jairus in verse 36. He says, don't fear. Don't look inward. Look outward and upward. Don't fear. Uh, the, The text there literally is keep on trusting. Don't fear. Only believe. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting It's interesting, I think what Jesus did in the instance with the woman, because there's that that kind of sandwich in the story there. We started with Jairus and we end the story with Jairus. And what takes place in the middle there with the woman, I think is a living sermon. I think what Jesus is doing here with Jairus is he's saying, believe like her. The reason that I delayed, the reason that I paused, the reason that I did not come quicker is because I wanted you to see how she believed. Keep believing like her. Don't stop believing like her, like her. Look at verses 37 and the following here. Mark tells us that no one was allowed to follow Jesus except Peter and James and John. There we see Jesus kind of first breaking off the inner circle of the three. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw all the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly, which by the way, that's the perspective of the world. That's all the world can do in the face of death is we can weep and wail loudly But we as believers do what? We mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no what? No hope. We have great hope. Jesus Christ has gone before us. And so we don't weep and wail as those who have no hope. And when they had entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. She's merely sleeping. And they laughed at him. They literally mocked him. Which, by the way, Jesus does not entertain mockers. Get your Bible there. It doesn't entertain them. What does he do? He put them all outside. And he took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him. And he went into the child, or went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl. Sweet, precious little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, there's the word again. Instantaneously, the girl got up, began to walk. It says that they were immediately overcome with amazement. The text there is literally they were amazed with great amazement. It's repetitive. Amazed with great amazement. And then he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Wow. What we're seeing here in chapter 5, friends, go ahead and close your Bibles. What we're seeing here in chapter 5 is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over the storm, Jesus is Lord over over the, the demonic world, Jesus is Lord over disease, Jesus is Lord over death. Jesus Christ is Lord. And just as he calms all the raging of the natural elements, he can calm all the raging in you. Have you come to him? Have you received him as Lord of your life? He is. Have you received him as that? Has he come in and made you a new creation? Has he calmed you and clothed you and quieted your soul and said, peace, peace be with you, my peace? No more at odds or at enmity with God, but my peace I give to you. Walk with me. It's interesting to note here in our text, and I'll conclude with this one statement, that both Jairus and the anonymous woman found what they were looking for at the feet of Jesus. Look at verse 22 and verse 33. Both Jairus and the woman found what they were looking for at the feet of Jesus. Are you sitting there? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word such good things for us here. Thank you that we can feast on your word. Lord, thank you that you instruct us, you teach us, you challenge us, you rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. You call sinners, you bid them come home to repent, to believe, to trust, to abide. Lord, I pray that not a person here this morning would spend their life on that which does not satisfy. They would not give their life to the world's remedies and fixes and ways but they would come and find who they're looking for at the feet of Jesus, just like Jairus and just like this anonymous woman. Lord, for your glory, your name, and your renown, would you make it so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.